Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 112, and I'm here with uh, today's guest, Francis Boyle, who is going to join me in talking about the poetics of fiction. Welcome, Francis. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you for having me, Amanda. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's good to have you back. So, I'm going to change to my reading glasses now so I can read a little bit of it. I'm still not used to having to have all these different glasses, but anyway, it seems to be working out so far. So this is the fourth installment of a thread that began in 2020, in which I invite a guest to discuss the poetic elements of a genre or type of creating work, creative work that is not classified as poetry. So in 2020, I discussed the poetry of music with Suparaj Singh. In 2021, it was the, the poetry of uh, film with... Uh, Jennifer Mulligan, and last year it was uh, the poetry of photography with Charles Earle, my husband. So, um, okay. so that's um, that's what we've done. And so, this the fourth installment. It, my poet, uh, my my poet. There you go. My guest is a poet and fiction writer and dear friend, Frances Boyle. So, Frances was on the show back in 2020 to discuss her short fiction collection, Seeking Shade, and uh, her novella Tower came out in 2018. Francis is the author of three poetry collections, including, I think that's right, including the most recent Open Work and Limestone, in, which came out in 2022. So I've already welcomed you, but welcome again, uh, Francis, to the Small Machine Talks. Thank, thank, thank you. Thanks. It's good. So what I'd like to start out with, my my favorite podcast other than the Small Machine Talks is um, David Naiman's Between the Covers. And I was recently listening to an episode, I think it was from 2021, but I'm not sure. I have I have a link. I should say, too, that I'm going to have a link to Francis's website on on the, the show notes of smallmachinetalks.com. And I'm also going to include a link to the Between the Covers podcast, include, including this interview with Anna Canis Schofield. Because when I was li listening to it, it seemed really apropos. I was starting to work on this idea of the poetic elements of fiction. And here's what she says. About she's talking about uh, one of her novels that she was working on. I'm really curious about musicality. I'm really interested in the note. It carefully scored that novel, the one that she was writing writing about. I, I can't remember the name now. Usually when I'm writing a novel, about the first 90 pages, I just know it back to front and inside out because I've written and rewritten it. And I'll take a word out, then I'll put it back in. And there are connections between a word that appeared three times earlier. In that regard, it is like poetry, I suppose, but it's not. It's a novel. The question is that our concept of the novel is so limited. It's unbelievable. Let's think about visual art for a moment. We're not going into galleries saying art has to have a frame and art can only have one a picture of a pear or flowers. Our concept of what we'll engage with in visual art is so much broader than what we will expect or anticipate to find in the novel. And so that's from the Between the Covers episode with Anna Canis Schofield. And, um, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. I've been working a lot with hybrid works lately that are hard to classify. Well, in the last year and a half, two years, maybe. So I, I was very interested in what she had to say. So I've been reading for the last um, three months, I've been rereading three of my favorite novels, not for their stories, but for their poetry, which is a really different way to read. So by doing this, I've seen how poetry can reinforce the tone of the story, offer insight into characters' personalities and the way they speak, 
provide a sense of play, stylistic and syntactic variety, and help readers come to an understanding of the story, not necessarily quickly, but possibly effectively and deeply through such devices as similes, repetition of words, alliteration, figurative language, and by weaving repeated imagery throughout the story. So that's sort of, if, if we have time, the three novels that I'll be talking about all being well are Everything Affects Everyone by Shauna LeMay, one of my, my, one of my favorite novels. Um, Half-Blood Blues by Essie Edugan and The God of Small Things by Aaron Datiu Roy, both all three novels which I really love. And Frances is also going to be talking about some of the novels that she's read or reread. So, uh, what 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 are you going to be talking about, Frances? Um, well, I'm going. I've got uh, three three different authors. Um, the the first book I'm going to be talking about is In the Skin of the Lion by Michael Ondaatje, and it came out, I believe, in 1987. Uh, uh, and I read it uh, within a year or two of it coming out, and haven't reread it since. So it was a, 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 a rediscovery, a re, a re um, invigoration of it. Uh, the second one is Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, uh, right. which is uh, a book that I've reread often since 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 I've had it, and uh, so it uh, it was familiar territory to me. But it was also sort of like looking looking at Marilyn Robinson is not, as far as I know, a, a, a poet, but uh, there are a lot of poetic elements in the book. And then the last author is somebody who uh, was at the uh, the Ottawa International Writers Festival just a couple of months ago, uh, an Irish writer, uh, Elaine Feeney, who is a poet yeah. who was here as a poet at Verse Fest a few years back, but she was here with her new uh, new novel, How to Build a Boat. So uh, I bought that and liked it so much that I sought out uh, her first novel, As You Were, from from the library. So so I read read both of those and. Um, yeah, they they're very um, they have there are certainly some commonalities, but uh, but they're very different books and very different uh, very different writers and very different experiences for me for all three all three of them. Yeah, that's great. And I I, I uh, remember Elaine at the uh, Writers Festival. I was really interested uh, by her. Uh, well, I thought her work was really fat, engrossing, and she seemed great too. It was a, it was a good talk, a good uh, conversation. Yes, lovely Ottawa International Writers Festival and Verse Fest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two festivals to put on everyone's calendar for 2024, if they can. Yeah. So uh, would you like to start with uh, talking a little bit about uh, a book in the, and then um, reading an excerpt from it? Uh, sure. Well, I'll start with In the Skin of the Lion. Um, I had uh, I had known a little bit of Andachi's work as a, as a poet. I think this was uh, likely his first fiction um, book that I read. And um what was the memories I retained of it, the very, very dim and distant memories from from you know, all those years ago were the uh, the physicality of it, you know, the uh, the the building of a bridge, the digging of the tunnel. And um, I hadn't really uh, kept much of the plot to it. but um, thinking thinking about how he constructed it, there is a very brief introduction that that says that the uh, the story is being told uh, by uh, a man to a young girl uh, on a long drive, um, and and he hasn't used a storytelling um, mode for it. It's not it's not told in the man Pat Patrick. We later learn in his voice, but it's um, but it's it does have the sense of a of a. Uh, looking at 
a whole range of history and a whole range of events, uh, not necessarily sequentially. There is sort of a chronology through it, but it does jump around in time. And it uh, it's um, you know third third person uh, with with dialogue, but uh, but it has a, a real intimacy uh, of memory to it. And there's just you know I made so many notes of a beautiful. Uh, fascinating uh lyrical phrases um which i won't <laughs> we don't have we, we we need another couple of hours to uh, to go through them all but um the there's just the the way that um he describes physicality the way he describes um you know people in landscape landscape itself and people in um in the city environment which which has um, you know, city we often think of as stark and and sterile, but uh, the city has as much life as a as a as a forest or or you know and and he's really kept kept that. Um, there's lots of metaphor. There's lots of recurrent images here of uh, of horizon is one and of stone. Um, so I'm just uh, just sort of actually scanning what I what I've got here to, to see what I'll read I think I'll um read just a couple of uh, of um, you know sort of interior one interior one and then one sort of more exterior um how how Patrick the, the who is the main character describes himself and his relationship with others So uh, yeah, she, he's he's just sort of confronting his his own uh, engagement. Patrick has clung like moss to strangers, to the nooks and fissures of their situations. He's always been alien, the third person in the picture. He is the one born in this country who knows nothing of the place. The Finns of his childhood used the river, even knew it by night. The men of burning rushes, delirious in the darkness, this he had never done. He was a watcher. A corrector. He could no more have skated along the darkness of a river than been the hero of one of these stories. Um, and then I'll just go on to um, a, a more physical description. This boathouse had no grandeur. The woman's bare feet rested one on top of the other on the stained wood floor, a lamp on the desk, a mattress on the floor. In this light, and with all the small panes of glass around her, she was inside a diamond, moth-like on the edge of burning kerosene, caught in the center of all the facets. He knew there was such intimacy in what he was seeing that not even a husband could get closer than him, a thief who saw this rich woman trying to discover what she was or what she was capable of making. So just a couple of very, you know, I don't know if they're representative, but a couple couple of samples of, of some of the language that, that really struck me in this book. Yeah, I love that diamond image. It's it's the kind of thing that would stay with me like the most like again it was funny when I was um every time someone asked me about a, the plot of a book, I always have a problem remembering the plot, but I always I often remember the images. So yeah, that's 
I read, I didn't read that book, but I read uh, Coming Through Sla the Slaughter or Coming Through Slaughter. And I really love that book. And again, that that one, I just, I remember the descriptions of jazz in that book as being, as being um, you know, really um, quite uh, significant in my, I don't remember anything about the plot at all. So <laughs> Yes, yeah, so somebody's asked me what it's about. It's, oh, it's about a girl or it's about <laughs> a family. It's about, <laughs> you know, Toronto in the 20s. Yeah. I'm going to suggest that for plot, people can go look up, do Google searches and look at because I'm not, I'm not going to be. And in the case of the, the first book I'm going to talk about is Everything Affects Everyone by Shauna LeMay, who I'm a huge fan of. I've published Shauna as well. And this book came out it by uh, with, with Palimpsest Press in 2021. And Shauna has an, a collection of uh, essays coming out in 2024 with Palimpsest again uh, called Apples on a Windowsill, which I'm really looking forward mm -hmm. to as well. So um, what do I, I have to say? OK, so we're talking about impressions after reading a book. So long after reading this one, I was left with the impression of wings, feathers falling, the blur of motion of white wings in a black and white forest. And the, yeah, that's what I, I the sort of thing that happens to me with um, with. Um, poetry and and uh, so this is what's happening here in this book so Xavier the main character is a poet and throughout the book she asks what it means to be a poet she says poets are in a perpetual state of becoming um Antonia wants to find the poetry around the person and there are new new that's another character there are numerous numerous references to poetry and poets such as Rumi and Rilke and Milos and Mary Oliver and a whole bunch of things um, and also she has a lot of poetic questions that run through the book, such as what does it mean to get to the heart of things? So there's a lot of stuff there. And she includes a lot of visual and oral, A-U-R-A-L descriptions, especially engagements with light. There are many references to the senses. The book is full of wonder. It's got lots of similes and especially synesthesia. And th there is a recurring image throughout the book of, of the images of wings and feathers which foreshadows the main character's discovery and care for a wounded angel. So there's lots of that. And then um, there's a lot of descriptions, too, of the angel, sounds, anguish, colors of wings, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so what I'd like to do is read an excerpt from um, a really good excerpt uh, that has to do with ice cream and uh, synesthesia. So I thought I would read that. So um, the angels I met had no answers, only questions. This is what convinced me that they were my kind. One of the angels I met worked in a gas station on the highway, and another was a surgeon. Yet another worked in an ice cream shop. All of the flavors, so many people seeking comfort. Each flavor seemed to symbolize a different sort of need for consolation. Chocolate is from the depths, very dark and warm. Vanilla is a favorite because it's quick, even if it is only temporary. It's soothing to both moral outrage and small disappointments. Strawberry is a consolation for slights of the past, long ago painful and unresolvable episodes. No wonder shops have added myriad flavors which answer a strong need for complicated emotions and their respective consolations. Butter pecan soothes the nerves before a performance. Cotton candy is consolation for childhood hurts that reverberate and awaken when a new hurt is felt. Rocky Road soothes many bruises at once and it is a balm for those hurts that were thought to be done with, but rise up again unannounced. Tiger Stripe is for the forlorn and inconsolable, and is a comfort for those who have been made to feel powerless and meek. Mint chocolate chip is a comfort when one has to defer to someone with greater power, knowing that the powerful one has not given them the time of day or listened to them at all. Neapolitan is the trifecta of healing vibes, useful for when someone hurts so much they can't tell where the ache originates. That's oh, lovely. Isn't that amazing? And there's so much I could have quoted so much from this book. I I, I just love it. So yeah, yeah. It's, 
Yeah, same thing. Consolation for childhood hurts. That's good. I I, I think, yeah, yeah, Rocky Road is actually, I like uh, butter pecan and Rocky Road are my two, when I, when I was eating ice cream, those are my two favorites. (laughs) That's really great. Yeah, but that's that's the kind of. But I mean, the, the thing is, like, uh, you quite like a lot of these authors. Like in the case of Shauna, she also writes poetry, and you write both poetry and fiction. Mm-hmm. I write mostly poetry these days, but I've also written um, fiction. And uh, the case of um, the other two authors that I have, uh, Aaron Datira and um, Essie Edugan, neither one of those, to my knowledge, are writing poetry. So it's kind of interesting to see that there's still lots of poetry in 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 fiction, which is very. Mm-hmm in general so yeah and, and michael and certainly has written both uh, poetry and prose so yeah yeah the, the, um, one of the things sort of the you know the the meta things that he says in in, um, in the skin of the lion is trust me there is order here very faint they're uh, very human meander if you want to get to town the opening sentence of every of every novel should should say that yeah exactly i like to meander that's 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 really fun yeah what's next on your on your uh, book list uh next on my book list is gilead and i should preface this by saying you know that that i was totally surprised that this ended up being one of my favorite books it you know i'm a a long-lapsed catholic a non-believer and this is the story of an an old uh, congregationalist preacher in Iowa in 1956 um, who has been lived in this small town of Gilead almost all his life been been the minister to the church there and um, uh, it has a lot of sort of reflection on theology in it but somehow I found it just absolutely fascinating and I've revisited it you know probably you know every year for the, for the last four or five years maybe longer and um, the motifs are the motifs are religious motifs, but they seem so humanist and so universal yeah. that uh, you know he talks about grace, he talks about blessing, and uh, he also there's um, an image of uh, his father who was his father father and grandfather were also uh, preachers in the same the same church. Uh, but the father, there was a falling out between them because the father was a pacifist, whereas the grandfather was an abolitionist who uh, was, um, you know, doing, um, you know, daring raids uh, in and uh, uh, working with with John Brown and, and all, all sorts of, you know, sort of fiery uh, illegal activities to, uh, and um, you know, I learned a lot of history from it too. I had no idea that Kansas was sort of a swing state as to whether it was going to join join the Union or join the Confederacy. So uh, lots of lots of background, but mostly just sort of beautiful, yeah. reflective um, conversational with himself. Um, and the book is structured, um, you know, the, the Andachi was supposedly a story told told by Patrick to Hannah, but this one is is actually a letter that um, John Ames is writing to the child of his. Uh, you know, late in life child, as he knows that he is on his last days from with with an illness. So at one point he he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, I'm not writing like I talk. I hope I'm not writing like I talk, give my sermons, but I am trying to write like I think. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and that is just absolutely fascinating to me. 
So one of the um, uh, one of the images that uh, come comes through a lot is the idea of blessing, um, and um, there's there's a, a wonderful scene that sort of prefigures it all um, when he talks about. Uh, as they were a group of children, we were very pious children from pious households in a fairly pious town, and this affected their behavior. So one time they baptized a litter of kittens. Mm -hmm. They were dusty little barn cats, just steady on their legs, the kind of wayfish creatures that live their anonymous lives, keeping the mice down and have no interest in humans at all, except to avoid them. Um so he goes on to tell how they how they baptize them and how the uh, but um, he remembers. I still remember how those warm little brows felt under the palm of my hand. Everyone has petted a cat, but to touch one like that with the pure intention of blessing it is a very different thing. It stays in the mind. For years, we would wonder what, from a cosmic viewpoint, we had done to them. It still seems to me to be a real question. There is a reality in blessing, which I take baptism to be primarily. It doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it, and there is a power in that. I have felt it pass through me, so to speak. The sensation of really knowing a creature, I mean really feeling its mysterious life and your own mysterious life at the same time. So that is, you know, an early example in the book of uh, of a blessing, and it and it comes back at the end when there is um, someone who has been a thorn in his side all of his life, um, who he manages in in giving him a blessing to to forgive, <laughs> um, and uh, so it's quite beautiful. And the other thing, the other the other short, very short thing is. Um, He's talking about, uh, he's talking to his son, and you know, it's all you throughout the thing. He says, how deeply I regret any sad thing, talking to him in the future, how deeply I regret any sadness you have suffered, and how grateful I am in anticipation of any good you have enjoyed. That is to say, I pray for you. And there's an intimacy in that. That's the truth. So as a definition of prayer, that's definitely something I could I could get behind, right? Yeah, you know, I, I I upon your recommendation, I read that book and I I loved it too. So uh, I I I have it on my Kindle. So I actually have a little excerpt too from that book that not part of mine, but I just it's towards the end of the book actually. So it's I love the prairie. So often I have seen the dawn come and the light flood over the land and everything turn radiant at once. That word good so profoundly affirmed in my soul that I am amazed I should be allowed to witness such a thing. There may have been a more wonderful first moment, and then in quotes, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. But for all I know, to the contrary, they still do sing and shout, and they certainly might well. Here on the prairie, there is nothing to distract attention from the evening and the morning, nothing on the horizon to abbreviate or to delay. Like mm. he's so insightful somehow, yeah. right? That's it's very insightful somehow. Like it's like until he says it, you don't think of it that way. And then, but that's that's a poetic way of of writing, I think. Yeah, and that also harks back to an, a scene early on when he's with his father, and they've out, been out on a you know a desperate trek to find the grandfather's grave. And yeah. there's a moment 
when they are they are at the graveside which they found and tidied up and the moon is coming up on one one horizon and uh, and the sun on the other and so just the 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 magic and mystery of that moment and so so he brings that back with uh, with the quote that you just had so yeah yeah it really uh, did great there are a thousand thousand reasons to live this life every one of them sufficient <laughs> I love that too. Actually, I, I could use that kind of a, of, of a like, that could be something I, I include in my my sort of regular inspirational quotes, right? That's a good one. Yeah. Great. That's great. So yeah, Gilead uh, by uh, Marilyn Robinson. Is that her name? Mar yes, Marilyn with the uh, double N E at the end. Right. We should. I should try to remember to put links to all the books cool. we've discussed in in the show notes so people yeah. can uh, can find them as well. Yeah. My next, no, the next book I want to discuss is uh, Half Blood Blues, which is by Essie Edugan, and it was published in 2011 by Thomas Allen Publishers. And I love this book um, for many reasons, especially for its jazz and its language and her amazing powers of description. It's basically, I guess, if plot wise, it's it's about um, uh, Canadian, American, and German black musicians, jazz musicians, and they are sort of at the start of the war, they are in Berlin, and they end up making an escape to Paris with the help of a woman named Delilah, who is actually working with Louis Armstrong. So it's it's, it's really a fascinating book. Yeah, and it's a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. So um, um, what sticks with me, um, okay, stick on my other glasses again. What sticks with me, especially, is the portrayals of light and shadow and smoke and grit. So, for instance, in the morning when the cold light poured in through the dirty glass, I couldn't remember my dreams. And there's a lot of figurative language. She uses similes on every page. There's this accumulation of similes. The voice is colloquial. They say it's a mix of German and American English. I found it very musical as well. There are a lot of sen sensual and vivid descriptions such as Paris was grim, all clotted shadows and stale air. Dawn was breaking strangely, the sky all leathery brown, uh, things like that. The portrait of Delilah in particular is very poetic. She's often associated with gold or if someone doesn't like her, they associated her with lead. And, mm. jet, and she's likened to a mirage, for instance. Jazz also has very poetic descriptions as well. So... Um, yeah, and like they have interesting nicknames as well. So for women, they call women James. They call uh, Janes uh, Jacks and Gates and uh, for men, Frogs, Crowds, the Kid for he Hero. And so, yeah, they have all, there's all of this. There's a lot of colloquial language and it really does add to the musicality of it. I'm going to start just with the opening of the book, actually. The whole book is, I have like the whole thing is just uh, ridiculously dog-eared to, to a, probably a publisher's dismay, but um there's a lot of dog-eared pages in this book. So here's the opening. Chip told us not to go out, said, don't you boys tempt the devil. But it's been one brawl of a night, I tell you. All of us still reeling from the rot. Rot was cheap. See the drink of French peasants, but it stayed like nails in your gut. Didn't even look right, all mossy and black in the bottle, like drinking swamp water. See, we lay exhausted in the flat sheets nailed over the windows. The sunrise so fierce it seeped through the gaps, dropped like cloth on our skin. A couple hours before, we was playing in some back alley studio, trying to cut a record. A grim little room, more like a closet of ghosts than any joint for music. The cracked heaters, lisping steam, empty bottles rolling all over the warped floor. Our cigarettes glowed like small holes in the dark, and that's how I known we wasn't buzzing. Hero's smoke not moving or nothing, the cigarette sig just sitting there in his mouth like he couldn't hear his way clear. 
So that's that's uh, mm-hmm. the other thing I like about about this writing is the rhythm of it. Like there's a, a, a distinct uh, she changes from long to short sentences. The slang as well. It all adds uh, adds to a real uh, a really strong musicality as well. So that's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I love what you were saying about siblings. I started to count the number of times she said like. And I know. <laughs> And it's like that on every page. One thing I, I, at least all of the books that I, I read for this had in common is they love the simile, the simile and, 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 and the metaphor too, uh, but, but very specifically, they, they really adore that simile. And, and I, I have a question, like, how do you write similes? How do you come up? Do you think you just come up with them kind of on the fly or something? Or like, how do people come up with similes? I don't yeah, know. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, when I think, I think in my own writing, it's, uh, it's, as I'm struggling to say something in in a way that'll be clear yeah. enough, but not, you know, pro- prosaic, even though it's prose, I'll, I'll I'll maybe just kind of take a sideways step to to something, and you know, the you know, fire hoses like snakes or something like that, or you know. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Like I was thinking too, how do you how do you learn how to write metaphor? I, I think the best way is is to read it. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend who said, uh, listen to um, songs. Songs have a lot of uh, lyrics, have a lot of of um, similes, especially in the. In the yeah. So it's an interesting thing. So just train your ear a little bit and and uh, think about the senses. Maybe is another mm-hmm. thing. what's around. Yeah. So make make analogies and stuff like that. What's your next uh, excerpt for? Um, well, the next uh, the next book is uh, Elaine Feeney's How to Build a Boat, and uh, it's uh, you know in terms of plot, it's the story of a um, neurodivergent boy who is uh, just uh, starting at a new school, and he's obsessed with creating a perpetual motion machine, which he thinks will somehow uh, bring back his his mother who died uh, yeah very young giving giving birth to him. And um, the way Feeney has constructed it, there's a lot of, you know, sort of third person narrative, but there's also a very, um, uh, very close, um, you know, first person stream of consciousness. So there's, uh, and, and she said when she was at the Writers' Festival that there's a section where they are actually building the boat. And she says many people said they skipped it to get on to the, to the plot of the story. Uh, she said, you know, to honor it, she had to include it. And I found it very, very poetic as well. You know, in this in a similar way to the the Andachi is um, you know, having the building of the bridge and building of the tunnel and building of the uh the water tra- treatment plant, this sort of the um the precision of talking about um, building something is really interesting. But um I'll I'll read um I'll read from the uh, first, um, yeah, it's the first. The first, there's a prologue and an epilogue. So this is uh, this is from the first chapter where we're um, meeting. We've met Jamie in, and his dad in the uh, prologue, but this is uh, Jamie in his in his own voice, and, and or it's actually it's not first person, but it's in his own. It's third person, very close. Uh, so he's about to go to go to this new school for the first time. Jamie's school uniform hung on his bedroom door and the plastic covering was pinned with a small tag that read, for collection, Jamie O'Neill, no charge, best of luck, Jamie X. All of Jamie's clothes were laundered before first wear. Best, socks, red, good, socks, red, first sock, second, Dr. Seuss, cat hat, elastic tight, weight, turn on Miriam 
uh, Mersigani first. Wait, think. Think first, James. If you're ever to whip up, laugh at yourself for saying whip up. Note the sound of the word, ship, cool whip. Family guy, repeat it. Cool whip, rhymes with ship up, good. Favorite color, red. Cats also, the colors of them, fur, all of them. Marmalade ones, hairless ones. Trousers, yes, yes. Good pleat, good. Belt, tight, tighter. New hole, not great. Ian insisted on doing with a fork. Level of exasperation with Ian, 10. Breathe, shirt. White, good. Tie, red, horrible. I do not like green eggs and ham. Ham, I do not like. I do not. Make your bed, I do not like. Get up, check the sky, get up. Put your feet on the ground like Ian says. Circadian rhythm, ground yourself, good. Get up, leg hairs, count. Do that first, settle yourself. Body in space, don't sing. Oh, sing, get up then. Make it all even, all of it. Must be even or threes, even or threes. Good man, don't wear the red socks. Do not violate college rules on the first day. I wish, I wish, I wish I could complain to a manager, tell him I don't want to go to school. What is the point? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And what's neat about that too is it's it's certainly, it's like a poem and it's the list form of, a, I, I find a lot of these writers have a lot of like, the next one I uh, when I we do when I talk about the God of Small Things, Arundhati Roy uses a lot of lists in mm. her, and that is a very and the lists of not necessarily like items, but I love all the instructions to the self there and yeah, that was a total poem, yeah. yeah. And similarly, the the epilogue is uh, is 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 uh, almost entirely a poem, as um, you know, is a bit of a spoiler that he, he the boat does get launched. So. Um, <laughs> Now, how are we doing for time? Can I read a bit of a bit of that? Oh, one? yeah, read more. Yeah, we're we're great for time. I think. Okay, so uh, Jamie um, the is is out in this Karak. I'm probably not pronouncing the the Irish right. Karak, <laughs> the, the small small boat. I think it's also called a Corin. Right. So, uh, and he's on on the, on the river, uh, which which leads to the ocean. But Jamie has gone far now. The voices are paper thin, then nothing, only rustling trees in his breathing, only the oars breaking the water surface like the heart beating. He rows along the river in a straight line. Jamie knows a straight line by the way it makes his body feels. Curves make him dizzy, though sometimes he zigzags just to feel, or to confuse his brain, snapping it into other thoughts as he crosses the street or stands alone on a pavement. But now he wants a straight line to pick up energy, to flood himself with certainty. Because lines drawn on a flat surface rarely meet again. In our average day, we make thousands of lines across our rooms, our schools, towns, cities. Because we fire off getting hurt, feeling love, unloved all day long, we find meaning in the line we have walked, looked hard to arbitrary things for symbols and reassurance, connecting many random sequences. Between a painting we once saw in a gallery and the face of a man on a train crying out loud. Between the white lines on a road whizzing by like all the seconds of our lives we have used up. Between a moment in a park watching a person drink coffee. And then a doctor in a hospital who made us cry out. Or a busker in bare feet singing on a grey street, giving off so much beauty that it derails our day. And all these lines that cut off and curves that meet. Between a face we watched slowly arrive before us in an airport terminal that would someday be the only person in the world who understood us enough to love us. 
As the kayak moves now, all the woods and rods and paint, the drill holes and the polished seat, remember, they have all been here before. So it's pulled to the ocean where wild salmon shoals go out and swim until they finally, exhausted, return to spawn, where swallows fly to the sun in swarms on a feeling they once had in their wings. And these journeys we make, all this intersection, this crisscrossing, means we can also fall off the edge. A line drawn off the edge of a square of square sheet of paper, a window washer returning to ground from a high-rise building, an ice skater on a rink, car over cliff. Jamie rows his line on a curved surface, thinks about the coordinates of a car that once made a trip with a pregnant girl in the back seat from Emory to Galway Hospital. Those lines can close, even sometimes they close back on themselves in completion, like a spiral, infinity symbol or a tragedy that two pe people have felt forever. Brew means pressure, and Jamie will always feel pressure, but today the water cools him, and he long, no longer feels a scalding on his ankles. His thighs are cold from where he waded deep, and now the flicker of the winter sun comes like cat's eyes, wish, wish. Uh -huh. So just as I'm reading, I'm, he I'm, I'm hearing all the similes there too. Yeah, and and it's really great the way she expands the idea, like she examines the the concept of the line and just expands it, expands it, and then brings it back to him like that. Like it's really, uh, it's quite beautiful actually, and it makes you think of um, just um, the idea of recurring imagery is something you can do in um, in fiction in a, in a poem. Well, if it's a long poem, well, I guess it doesn't matter about the size of the poem, but just that whole luxury of recurring imagery and how it, mm -hmm. in the case of fiction, how it can reinforce the characters too. And they're like sort of, you know, that way next time she uses maybe later on in the novel or if it was later on, but you know, like she, she, that line could be there and we could automatically go back there. Right. That's some of the reasons for figurative language too, right. To mm -hmm. short form that helps us. It's almost a mnemonic, a figure, a figure it, it is you know because in in you know that back to the adachi there's at one point where early on he picks up a piece of feldspar in, in his pocket or he's fingering it in his pocket and then you know several chapters later we learn that his father was killed in an explosion in a feldspar mine mm -hmm. and it's like flip flip back to the to the beginning yeah. you know, look look for, for the echoes of that again the power of the image that's really yeah. great the last, uh, the last book on my list is *The God of Small Things* by Aaron Dati Roy, and and I have a reason for reading this book. It was, uh, I guess, I should say that it was published by Random House in 1997. Years ago, I asked the uh, dear friend and writer John Lavery what his favorite novel was, and mm -hmm. John died in 2011, unfortunately. He's a lovely person and uh, very talented, and he and he was a really excellent. Uh, writer of fiction and and just I could do a whole converse, uh, talk about the poetics of his fiction actually so mm -hmm. good but so his favorite his favorite novel when I asked him was the God of Small Things so that's mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons that I read the book so um, uh, thinking of John Lavery when I'm when I'm rereading this book this time too and yeah the, so it's it's set in Kerala India in the sixties and it's uh, basically the lives of uh, fraternal twins whose 
are affected by these love laws, which um, uh, mean that you can't, for instance, uh, have a relationship with someone outside of your caste or or people who are related. Uh, there's all kinds of different love laws that uh, have an effect on this family and on these twins in particular. So, um, and the whole work is just so poetic. It's full of similes. Uh, she does this interesting thing with compound words, like with colors, like she'll she'll combine colors, green, blue, or into one word, lots of repetition, lots of lists. She plays with syntax a lot, uses a lot of color. And one thing I noticed in particular was what I referred to as the poetics of the grotesque. She's mm. got a lot of descriptions of really gross things or gross, uh, gross descriptions of, of, of uh, places and also things that happen to people and stuff like that. And it's, it's quite gross anyway, and, and really well done. So I'm going to read, uh, let's see if I can find my place in here. Um, I'll, I'll read a section, um, a section from, um, from um, a chap chapter five called God's own country. And it, it's, it's, I, I've written beside, I've written in the book. Oh, it's such, I'm a terrible person. I have written in a book. Awful. But anyway, I've written grotesque beside it. So there you go. Despite the fact that it was June and raining, the river was no more than a swollen drain now, a thin ribbon of thick water that lapped warily at the mud banks on either side, sequined with the occasional silver slant of a dead fish. It was choked with a succulent weed whose furred brown roots waved like thin tentacles underwater. Bronze-winged lily trotters walked across it, splay-footed, cautious. Once it had the power to evoke fear, to change lives, but now its teeth were drawn, its spirit spent. It was just a slow, sludging green ribbon lawn that ferried fetid garbage to the sea. Bright plastic bags flew across its vicious, weedy surface like subtropical flying flowers. The stone steps that had once led bathers right down to the water and fisher people to the fish were entirely exposed and led from nowhere to nowhere, like an absurd corbelled monument that commemorated nothing, ferns pushed through the cracks. On the other side of the river, the steep mud banks changed abruptly into low mud walls of shanty hutments. Children hung their bottoms over the edge and defecated directly onto the squelchy, sucking mud of the exposed riverbed. The smaller ones left their dribbling mustard streaks to find their own way down. Eventually, by evening, the river would rouse itself to accept the day's offering and sludge off to the sea, leaving wavy lines of thick white scum in its wake. Upstream, clean mothers washed clothes and pots in unadulterated factory effluence. People bathed, severed torsos soaping themselves, arranged like dark busts on a thin, rock ribbing, rock, thin rocking rib, ribbon lawn. On warm days, the smell of shit lifted off the river and hovered over Ayamenon like a hat. <laughs> oh, yeah. like, wow, what a... <laughs> You can see that as a movie, right? I think we had a little help from Alexa as well. Well, we, I shouldn't use that name, but anyway, in the middle of that, but hopefully that will be okay. But yeah, so that's, and I feel with Arundhati Roy in particular, I haven't read any, I, oh, I did read, I've read some of her essays, but I haven't read any more of her fiction. Mm -hmm. I feel like her books are like a movie. Like they really are very cinematic the way she yes. describes things. But um, although thank, thank goodness we don't have, smellorama yet yeah i don't want that i especially don't want that for that book but yeah okay. it's, it's such a thrilling book like i have i have um i have all the way through i have i have just just dog ears and dog ears like just like it, it's just incredible how um like there's one she has where she has um the i guess give you an example of of one of her lists 
So Rahel groped behind the row of books and brought out hidden things, a smooth seashell and a spiky one, a plastic case for contact lenses, an orange pipette, a silver crucifix on a string of beads, baby Kochama's rosary. She held it up against the light. Each greedy bead grabbed its share of sun. Like just, it's so like, it, it, like there's so much poetry in that, you know, mm -hmm. like it's just um, those, and she's got those lists all the way through. Like I, I don't know how to write fiction so so well as that, but uh, yeah, well, obviously, but that to me, it's it's a very poetic um, yeah. thing. Yeah, because yeah, because the, cause the list the lists, uh, you know, you were talking about uh, you know sort of the rhythm in in half blood blood blues and 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 yeah. and, and lists have this this sort of um, yeah sort of the similar similar effect. It set, sets up a cadence and with the, with the list, and you break it and and it and it goes on and and so it, it it's a very effective way to think to add add musicality to to fiction, right? That's it. Yeah, and, and I also think uh, when you're a reader, getting a chance to, I don't know, you could hear it, like listen to an audiobook, but just reading it aloud yourself, mm -hmm. it means you have to think about your breath as you're reading too. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely like in that list, for instance, there's, there's, I have to work on like, you know, how am I breathing through that? Like, where do I pause? And and even like there, there's, um, I mean, the list itself is a vertical list in the book too. So, mm -hmm. you know, there it's a real pa pause, but thinking about the breath is something that is a poetry thing, right? But no, it's also it's also any kind of I think any kind of um, any kind of thing because we all have to breathe. So um, when you're yeah. reading out loud, though, you get a chance to focus on that. So as an exercise, readers, our listeners, maybe take one of your favorite novels or short story collections and read a little bit of it aloud and see how mm -hmm. it how it how it changes your impressions of the book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I always read my poetry aloud to myself as yeah. I'm writing it, but uh, I have never taken the advice I've gotten that, that I should be should be reading, reading my fiction until it's actually been published and I have to read it for an event or something. Okay. Like that. So, uh, so, so I, I think that it would be really helpful to, to do that to get to. I mean, certainly for dialogue, you know, there's nothing, nothing like saying dialogue out loud to see if it feels clunky but uh, but but also for the imagery as well it would be really yeah. really interesting to see where where you can find the poetry in it as you uh, as you um as you write and as you revise i read everything i write aloud for for rhythm and sound mm -hmm. like every even even when i was writing erotica for 10 years erotic fiction i read it all aloud and first of all i read it aloud to charles he's my first reader so i always read everything to him aloud anyway but mm -hmm. um Reading aloud is how I edit usually, and even if it's if it's fiction, uh, maybe explains why I don't write that much fiction because it would <laughs> be a, a lot to. But what for short stories, especially, I've always read it all aloud, and for me, sound is still an essential part of the like of the the connection between the words and uh, where they go in my in my um, heart and my brain. I guess in my mind, yeah, it all. I need the sound, so yeah. <laughs> Okay, this will I add that I'll add that to my toolkit for sure. <laughs> so you have another excerpt for us, another uh, yeah, I know I another another really Feeney book as I mentioned at the beginning. I I really loved how how to build a boat, and I went and you know got got on the on the list of the library to get her first uh, first book that was also you know the, the how to build a boat was a, a finalist. It was a long listed for the Booker, and and this. First one uh, uh, was was one and was nominated for a bunch of awards, and um, what's really you know one of the really interesting things about it is 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 the voice how how she brings brings the story in through voices of different kinds, 
Um, it's um, it's a story you learn right away. It's not no spoilers that uh, that she she has just received a uh, a terminal a terminal diagnosis, uh, and she has she has not chosen she has chosen not to tell her husband that she is ill. Um, so she's in hospital and sort of disguising what she's there for. Uh, so she is. Um, we're in her head. It's first person, but she's uh, she's in a in a room with uh, with a bunch of other patients, and um, so we learn other stories of art from the main protagonist story through overheard dialogue. The one one end of a phone call conversation, we we learn you know it's sort of uh, about um, you know the restrictions on reproductive rights in Ireland and the and the repercussions and that have through the occasionally lucid. Um, stories of um, a, a character who's quite deep into dementia. We hear about, uh, you know, sort of the treatment in the Magdalene laundries and, and whatnot. But uh, so it's all interwoven with her story. And we get, without uh, without a lot of explanation, we get the voice of her um, quite abusive father as you know, from her childhood on, on the farm. Um, and uh, but we don't ever, you know, get get her reflections on it or her details. It's just this is this is the Da's voice there. So so it's so it's it's really quite uh, quite um, opaque in some ways. How how the the reveal of what's what's going on, and um, like in uh, how to build a boat, the the ending is very lyrical. Uh, she's she's come home from the hospital. She yeah, and uh, she the, we have a domestic scene of sort of you know uh, family scene with her and her teenage boys and her husband and just sort of a very daily life and the teenager on his cell phone, and then she turns to the 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 final. Uh, the final sequence in the book is um, just over just over two pages, and it's back on the farm, um, and it's um, she's shearing a ewe. I was shearing a ewe, and she was wrathful, for she was an old ewe, the oldest ewe we had, and we had kept her from when she was a pet lamb, fed her by the bottle, for her mother had died moments after birthing her, and left a white mound heaped on her out on our scraggy hill, just down from the yard, where she lay among the yellow ferns and tall whistles, thistles. So when she was a young lamb, all her memory came from touch, our early touches of the bottle toward her mouth. Her wool hard and coarse, and as she grew, her sensory memory was alive. And now she'd had enough of her wool being taken, stripped off her. She kept hopping and leaping at the back of the holding pen, late May, flocked with all the other sheeps. Ready, she darted this way and that, head down, for the old ewe was too old to be neat. As she scrabbled down into the corner, her feet skidding out from under her, desperate to stay heavy with her coat. For maybe her memory knew that November was cruel, but nothing to the March winds that would come again, with hail and wicked frosts and that utter cruelty of April, trying to kill off what it has spawned, spiting itself, when the early growth would flourish in earnest. And this old ewe had birthed lamb after lamb, clean and fast each spring, early to drop, always one of the first, 
giving us Easter meat, and every summer we'd grab her by the neck in the pen and straddle her between our thighs, my younger brother holding down her body. I'd knock her sideways gently, and he'd kneel softly upon her warm, coarse wool to pin her, as I'd snip at her with an old blade shears as her coat flocked back on itself into folds. Wings of buttery yellow, damp, it became one rug and we'd skirt it, roll it, helping her up as her frightened eyes watched for my brother to lift up the blue metal clasp of the gate. And when he'd swing it back open, she'd dart out, rushing up the steps of the pen, shitting nervously and run back down towards the scraggy hill, unused to the lightness of her body now, two or three fresh wounds in my wake, and I'd berate myself as I was falling to sleep that night, tossing and turning for the clumsy, sharp cuts I left on her that she didn't deserve, that would sting. I'd felt woeful, embarrassed at her exhaustion, at her body's benightedness, her terrified dark eyes staring at me, and my hands wet from sweat, sticking to the small shards of paint on the old royal blue shears, the paint chipping off to reveal a rusty, dirty brown, like the use particle knowledge in pieces, how to lie still, play dead, hide, show yourself, hide again, when to jump up and run and run, running fast away from us, giving her last birth out on the hill. The old you is down, the you is sick, Hunt her in, grunting, hunt her out, bleating. Leave her to the sun, the wind, the rain. Spray her dipper, copper injections. Toss her, watch her, count her. Till she dies, until we rolled up her last wool coat, the last offering. And we gathered it, twined it neatly. It was warm and comfortable. And I let her go as she skittered out through my hands, running on past the open gate, out to join the herd. Though this time she slowed to a walk, uncertain up against the strong breeze on the hill. Her shorn, beating skin stayed throbbing under my nervous hands as she at last put her head down and grazed a little, and until eventually I could no longer feel her body under mine, as my own blood roused through me now, coursing, hot, alive, just then, rushing, whooshing, until I no longer felt pain, just a gentle gushing in my ears, warm, goodbye, I have known you, I have known the way of you, now as you were, and I thanked her for all she had given us. Hmm. One wow. sentence. <laughs> one sentence. That's fantastic. And, and <laughs> that's a lot to read. <laughs> but it's in one breath. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny about those. I, I mean, I loved all of that. But what really stuck with me were those scissors, the the paint, mm -hmm. the, the paint. Yeah, the flaking, flaking. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I the whole thing. And I love all the sounds. And mm -hmm. it was such a compelling um but yeah, it's strange how that folk, like sort of like, it's like the image was blurred and then it suddenly became sharply into focus with that. Like, wow, that's good. That's, um, I could Yeah, the, 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 the fleece rolling off, like yeah, rolling off her in one piece. That was really yeah. incredibly strong too. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's great. Did you, did you want to read any more excerpts at all? Or are you, you had enough reading of excerpts? Now? Um, I, you know, I have, you can see I have, I have yeah. many, many uh, stickies, okay. um, but yeah. I think, I think, I think that's good, good for now. I think I've given a flavor of those, those three yeah. books, and some of the things I love about them. That yeah, that's great. Me well, too. Four books, rather. Yeah, four. But uh, what I, what I would like to know too is, uh, what about you and your, um, because you know, you, I would say you start your books that came out first were your poetry books, right? You, and then the fiction has come out later. Whenever you read, read it, wrote it, that's a different matter. Would you, do you, um, do you think that when you write fiction, um, 
It helps you to have the sort of the background of a reader and writer of poetry in the, in writing fiction. Do you? I, I, I think it has to, you know, yeah. I don't, I mean, consciously go in, I, I, you know, my, my fiction process is more just to try and um, get from a beginning to, to an ending. And it's, you know, the meandering is the path it takes. And I think that that's where sort of whatever I've, uh, you know, infused from poetry, what, you know, the bi biosmosis is what makes its way into, into the fiction. Um, but I, I think, yes, definitely the, the reading of it and being immersed in it is, is what, uh, what comes out, you know, what, whatever poetic mm -hmm. or lyric, uh, lyricism there is to my fiction is com comes from, from that. Getting that training, that sensibility for yeah. language and uh, image and yeah. all that. Stuff. And a couple couple of reviews have you know maybe you know maybe because they know I wrote you know I published poetry first, but they've said that you know the the fiction is they, you can tell that it, the fiction is written by a poet. A couple you know a couple of different reviews mentioned that. So right, well that's good. Yeah, well that's that's great. And I I loved both Tower and Seeking Shade. With Tower, I I, always, I remember thinking it was really interesting that you named the 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 daughter chicory I, that was a very interesting sort of the whole role of the plants in that uh, in that book was really mm. interesting too so <laughs> yeah. well thank you so much yeah yeah the um yeah i am not i am not a gardener at all <laughs> <laughs> and my you know the the one of the one of the protagonists is very much a gardener and in my early drafts i had i had help from a fiction group uh, you know one of whom used to write for Harrowsmith. so she she was like yeah, have her squash some potato bugs. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's good. Things like that are important. Yeah, yeah. That's, do you have any any readings or anything coming up in in twenty twenty four so far? Uh, nothing so far. No, I've uh, you know I had a fairly busy fall yeah. uh, with, with a lot of readings and a couple of workshops, but uh, no, my my slate is is clean for for um, the for next few months. I'm hoping you know I ha I haven't ever read in Montreal, so I'm hoping to to get yeah. there at. Uh, at some point, so I'm going to look into that. Uh, you know, when I get to that, um, you know. But although my book is now well over a year old, so I don't know how my my last book, my Open Work in Limestone. So we'll we'll see if anybody's interested in in having me read well, or do workshops. I'm sure they will be. I'm doing a, a collaborative workshop actually on this very subject of of poetry and prose. It looks so great. <laughs> an accidental kind of thing. I was um so Kate Hartfield approached me and asked me whether and she's a great fiction writer who I met years ago in a fiction workshop I did with a bunch of people Kate, Rob McLennan, um a lot of other people were in the workshop as well. And and this is like, we're talking 2006 or 2005 mm -hmm. or something like that. So anyway, we've kept in touch. And so she asked me if I'd like to do a collaborative workshop with her. And so what this is, is on poetry and prose, crossing genre boundaries to strengthen your writing. And we're going to be looking at uh, various um, examples from poetry and narrative pro poetry and lyrical prose. Oddly, we found that um, I'm I'm the one to discuss. It makes sense for me to discuss the lyrical prose, the poetic elements in lyrical prose, and for her to discuss the uh, kind of the uh, the uh, prose elements, the fiction elements in narrative poetry. So that's how we set up the workshop. There's yeah. uh, it's it's a two hour workshop. It's only fifty dollars. So if any listener wants more information, you can get in touch with me, and I'll uh, 
I'll uh, I'll send you the information. So that's going to be. I'm okay. very very excited about that for sure. Oh yeah, it's, it's going to be it's going to be fun. I really appreciate it. So um, thank you, Francis, for being on the show. Thanks to Charles Orr for processing, and to Jennifer Peterson for help with the intro and outro, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. And it's at that this point when I usually say, say stay tuned for the next episode of the Small Machine Talks, but this time around we're going to pause. Uh, Angel House Press activity for 2024, including the podcast, because of major changes in my life. Um, it's both both uh, uh, major changes and financial setbacks, but it's also an opportunity. So um, we have to uh, Charles and I have to look for work, uh, both of us full time. So if you know of anything, uh, let us know. But also uh, in the meantime, I'm offering my services as a mentor and um, as an editor and um, all that stuff. And um, my Substack is also, um, I'm gonna include in the show notes and check it out and stay tuned to that for more information. So this is the eighth season of the Small Machine Talks. And I'd like to thank all our guests, listeners and supporters. I'm sorry that this pause is necessary. I'm not going to say that the podcast and Angel House press activities are over. We're still going to have um, Beast Body Epic and other chat books and things for sale. Uh, I don't know what the future will bring. It's a rough time for many people, but I'm very fortunate and grateful for love and friendship and all the joy this podcast has brought me. So I wish you all a peaceful, joyous and creative 2024. And please feel free to get in touch with me. And thanks again, Francis, for being on the show. Okay, thank you, Amanda. And 112 episodes. Is 112, there. yeah. Wow. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.